0: But we're looking, we're looking right now at uh, verses 1 through 12 of chapter 3, picking up where we left off last Sunday. Uh, Matthew writes uh, his gospel to urge his readers, especially his own people, the Jews, that Jesus of Nazareth truly is their king, their Emmanuel. Emmanuel. So here, Matthew says, is the prophet sent by God, that's John the Baptist, to tell the people that the king is coming, like a herald sent before a king's arrival. John the baptizer calls his hearers to prepare themselves for the king and his kingdom. And if there's a single word that John uses that summarizes what he is calling his hearers to do. It is this dynamic verb, repent. John is calling his people to repent before the coming king, to repent in the face of his arrival. Because if you look at verse 2, you will see that this word is prominent in his message. In fact, you can summarize his whole sermon. Repent For the kingdom of heaven is at hand, and all that's involved with that kingdom coming is about to come. The kingdom of heaven, or the kingdom that comes from God, is about to arrive because the king is about to arrive. And as we continue to read the text, as we saw last week, this this call for repentance is central in all of the message of John's preaching in verses 1 through 12. So Matthew comments in verse 3, this is the one that Isaiah said would come one day. A voice crying in the wilderness. He's quoting from what we call Isaiah forty verse three. Prepare the way of the Lord; make his path straight. How are people to to, to themselves prepare this road? To prepare the path for the king. How do they make it easy for the kingdom come? To, to, to for the king to come, so that there is nothing impeding his path, nothing blocking his way to come and be their king. But this this straight, smooth path to the throne to rule over them. How are people supposed to do that? I mean, if we knew that we today were going to receive an important political leader like a governor or a president into our own home, what kinds of things do you think that you and I would be doing to make sure everything was in its place? Like the yard perfectly manicured. If you have kids, you know, the toys uh, put away, uh, the, the tools put away. That list that your wife has that you never get finished until you sell the house and move, you know, uh, that you, you get that all done. Okay, because you're, you're waiting for this person to arrive. And we would dress ourselves up as nice as we can, all for the purpose of giving him a welcome worthy of his position. But this king that John is proclaiming is not interested in how we make ourselves look on the outside. He's interested in our genuine response on the inside. Making his way straight is by means of repentance. The coming of Jesus is paved by the repentant, righteous hearts of his disciples. And what was true then is still true today. We are waiting for the King to arrive again. Jesus instructs His disciples to pray for His kingdom to come, which is a prayer for the King to come. It's the final prayer in the entire Bible. Revelation 22, verse 20, amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Probably several of you have prayed this prayer in your lifetime. And if we truly belong to this coming King, if He truly is our Savior, and we have declared our submission to Him through our faith in His death for our sins and His resurrection from the dead, then our lives should be characterized today, among other things, by repentance. Now, as we saw last week, we are called to prepare the way of Jesus, our King, through a heart of repentance, to five profound truths that, that really come right out of this text. And these truths help us to understand the urgency of this dynamic known as repentance. The first profound truth that we saw the meaning of repentance. Simply put, repentance is turning or returning to God from sin. Turning around, going a different direction from one direction, our sin, to another direction, God and His will for us. And we do not derive this definition as much from the text here in Matthew 3 as we do from the larger context of God's prophetic word to His people throughout the Old Testament. You realize, of course, that John the Baptist, or or the baptizer, is really the way they would have heard that expression in the New Testament. Uh, he's, He's not a New Testament prophet. He is the last Old Testament prophet, sent by God to call His Old Testament people that we are reading of in the Gospels to repent. And as we saw last week, when we, we look at this call to repent in the Old Testament by the earlier prophets, the ones who came before John the Baptist, connecting repentance with turning. God is always telling His people, turn around, come back to me stop walking in an unrighteous direction, stop ignoring my desire for you, stop playing with sin and come back to me and love me and serve me by faith. Repentance is not just a change of mind. We can commit that etymological fallacy by just saying, here's what the, here's what the word means if we take it apart. But repentance is always in the text about trying to turn around. It's not just making ourselves look more attractive so God will accept us. It's a very real, honest recognition we're not walking in the right direction because it's not the direction that pleases the Holy God. So we say, I don't want this anymore. You don't even have to know what the word repentance is. You don't even have to have a theological definition of it. You just have to recognize this is not right. I need to follow God. And you turn and begin to follow God and love Him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, as He tells us to in His Word. Listen, what I'm about to say. Some of you who are who are hearing this, say uh, all. Hear me say all of this. You are you are walking perhaps on the greatest wrong path, and that is the path that Jesus called the wide road leading to destruction. To eternal judgment, because even though you may have been to church all your life, and even though you may maybe have been coming to Gateway for a long time, uh, there's never really been a time in your life where you personally recognized your need for forgiveness from a loving and holy God. And you in your heart then embrace Jesus Christ as your Savior. You believed that Jesus paid the penalty for your sin with His death on the cross and through His mighty resurrection is offering you eternal life simply by believing Him and trusting in Him to save you. Instead, you've been simply cleaning up the yard, strengthening the house, making yourself look acceptable on the outside. And, and here's what's true. You, you feel often better about yourself when you do that because your family and friends and everybody around you who know the Lord feel better about you. And you have learned to be accepted that way. Have you ever been really shocked when certain people you know who you thought were always saved suddenly seem to turn away from the Lord and they just want nothing more to do with Christianity ever? And I'm talking about good friends and family members that you just assumed were, were believers. Or maybe they're adults with children already, and, and maybe even church leaders and pastors. It happens. And you're thinking, what happened to these people? And, and, and your faith is sometimes shaken by that. I'll tell you what happened. In a lot of cases, they got over their need to be accepted by others. Sometimes it's because they had something happen that made them really angry, or sometimes they got fed up with the hypocrisy they they saw in other people who claimed to be Christians. Sometimes it was because they simply wore down emotionally and they could not keep up the pretense any longer. We can believe one thing and do another only for so long before we wear out and sometimes snap. And maybe I'm describing someone here this morning. You know in your heart that you are not following the Lord as a believer, I've I've talked with people who have come to faith in Christ after they've, they've lived for a long time and everybody thought they were Christian and they, they were like, you know, I've never been saved. And and I, I I ask with curiosity, now, what was going through your mind? Were you always like, you know, I thought I was a believer, but then I realized I was not. I've never had one to this day tell me, yeah, I really thought I was a believer, but then I decided I, I must not be. They all said, yeah, I knew. I knew all along. Now, that's, that doesn't mean there can't be somebody who says, I thought I was, Okay. But that's usually a different kind of conversation. Everybody I've met so far in that circumstance has said, I I knew in my heart, I was not a believer. And I'm just trying to talk to you this morning. The Bible says that God loves you and His Son to die for you. And He is calling you. He's welcoming you to turn around and embrace His Son and what He did to save you. And to know this forgiveness and joy that really is yours. If you embrace Jesus Christ and once you come to him and are saved, God through the Holy Spirit gives you this energy and desire to continue to believe and to repent when needed every day. Because for those of you who are truly believers, what you did when you came to Jesus Christ for salvation, you continue to do throughout your life. You you don't become a Christian. You begin to become a Christian and you're a Christian your whole life and you're a Christian through eternity. You're a Christ-like one. For all eternity. It's not something that happened in the past that you forget about. You're not a Christian because you believed in Jesus once upon a time. You're a Christian because you believe in him today. The Bible always says that's the evidence. Never what happened. The Bible never bases our relationship with Christ on a past decision. Only a present reality. But just as we do not stop believing, we, do we stop repenting. We never stop say When we're following the Lord... And we go off the path that we need to turn around. We never stop saying, well, you know, that was wrong. And, and, and Father, I thank you for your forgiveness. And I, and I promise by God's grace that I, I am going to do better in this. I'm, I'm not going to go back into that sin again. We might say the same thing again and again and again about that sin. But if we really mean it, if, if, if we're like, I really don't want this anymore. I don't know why I keep stumbling. God wants us to continue to turn around. And to begin to know his grace in giving us strength and eventually more victory over that sin. But if we give up, we'll never know that. Repentance is not some technical specialized part of religion. It's a real world, genuine turning from what is sin to what is holy. Holy by the standard of God's word. That's what repentance is. It's, it's turning around. And John's message in this text is just as relevant for us today as it was for his audience who were about to meet the King of Kings. Now, we saw another profound repentance last week as well. We not only saw the meaning of repentance, but also the place of repentance. We saw that repentance comes to a place of humility In order to repent, we have to admit we're wrong and and, uh, that we're not who we appeared to be. That our external shell that we were dressing up every day to make ourselves look acceptable to others was actually a lie. That takes humility. The people who repented in verse 4 it tells us we're responding to the preaching of a man whose demeanor was one of lowliness and humility. John lived in the wilderness, the text tells us, and wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Right? Now, that's not normal. All right? I just want us to understand that. I mean, Just because we're reading the Bible doesn't mean it's any less weird to the people who are watching him in the wilderness than it sounds like us, uh, to us today. And we don't naturally want to associate with lowly people because then we look lowly too. But not only were they responding to the preaching of a lowly prophet, they had to leave the comfort of their own towns and villages and go out to him, to this lowly place. And it's not like you can get in your car and secretly drive over there. Everyone would see you and your family journeying out to the wilderness to be part of this revival that was going on, and they would know where you were going. The place of repentance is always one of humility. When we don't want to turn around, it's normally because we're just too proud to admit we're wrong. We're too proud to say, I'm going the wrong way, and I need to turn back. It's why men never ask for directions, by the way. And I, I'm, not, I'm not trying to be funny by that. Um, it, it's, it's true. Uh, and I, I say that as a man. Uh, we're, we, we, we know we're going, we think, <laughs> we think. And, and uh, you know, we'll get there. We'll figure it out. There's a reason for stereotypes. Our wives are like, why don't you just ask that person over there? And we're like, no, 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 no. I've got this. Because typically, we feel humiliation when we have to ask somebody for help. But we can uh, all be the same way spiritually. We're so self-assured. We're so proud to admit when we're wrong, that we stubbornly dig in and we keep going, even sometimes to destruction, That's why God sometimes as an act of love and mercy and grace actually puts us in a place of humility. Or God allows us to get into huge trouble on a path that was not in His will. And sometimes it is a divine push into humility that brings us to cry out to Him in repentance and return to the right path because that's really what God wants. He knows we're not going to get there on our own. He has to give us His grace. And sometimes that's what His grace looks like. But humility is absolutely essential if we're going to repent. That is one of the profound truths about repentance that we see reflected in this text. Now, there are three more profound truths, and I think we can get through them pretty comfortably this morning. Clustered around this call to repent in the text. So not only do we find the meaning of repentance and the place of repentance, we also discover the action of repentance. Repentance is expressed through confession through confession and commitment. That's how I'm going to summarize that. Confession and commitment, because we see the people's response to John's call to repent in verses 5 and 6. Let's look back there at the text. Matthew says that they were going out to Him, and they were baptized by Him, confessing their sins. We could actually read the text this way, in fact. They were Baptized while confessing their sins. There was a way, there's a way that Matthew could have written this in Greek, which would have made it seem very obvious that they confessed their sins, and then once John was satisfied that they had confessed, they would get down into the water and be baptized. But that's not the way John writes it. He, he writes the, it, it grammatically so that confession and baptism are brought together in the same action. When John called them to repent because the kingdom from God was being offered to them, this is what they did. This was their action. Let's talk about the first. What does it mean to confess your sins? Well, the word confess means to acknowledge something. Really, that's all it means to admit it, to declare it. It means that we have to identify the sin in our lives that we want to turn from. We need to name it before God, not gloss over it. We, we can all say, you know, Father, you know I'm not as good as I need to be, and I, I, I'll try to do a little bit better. That's not confession. That's not acknowledging. It's, you've been there. It is hard sometimes to tell God even in prayer, Lord, this is who I am. This is what I've done. This is how I've thought, and I know this is wrong. I know this does not please you. We say, Lord, this is what I've done. I'm ashamed. I'm sorry. This is not the kind of thought or love or action that is worthy of you. And by the way, I think there's a lot of sorrow that comes with repentance. I'm not really talking about that a lot this morning because we all sorrow kind of in different ways, but, and, and you can't just be sorry by your, and, and alone, and that's somehow repentance. That's not what repentance is, and that's not what confession is, just being sorry. But I think there is a lot of sorrow if we mean what we're saying. This is what I desire to turn away from and toward you. You know, the Apostle Paul had a time preaching in Ephesus that was very similar, if you compare the two experiences, uh, with what he was experiencing and what John was experiencing in the wilderness of Judea. Many pagan Ephesians had come to faith in Christ. And Luke tells us in Acts 19 that also many of those who were now believers came confessing, there's the same word, and divulging. That's what confession does. We we name it. We say what it is. Their practices. They were telling Paul, I used to be like this and I used to do this, but I'm turning from these very specific sins. So we read a number of those who had practiced magic arts, brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it to be 50,000 pieces of silver. They were confessing their sin of participating in the honor of demons and the occult arts. And I'm sure those that's just the tip of the iceberg of what they were confessing. But in verse 20, this becomes the evidence that the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. How do you know that the word of God is taking hold? How do you know that the preaching of God's word is having its effect? How do you know that when you're, you're, you're reading the word and you're walking with the Lord that it's having an impact on your life? You see change happening. You see this desire to confess. That doesn't mean parade all of your sins in front of the whole church to be scrutinized. But I think it does mean at the least that there are people within the body of Christ that we have a relationship with that we should open up with, that we can say to one another, I have sinned. I've acted in a way that doesn't please God. I need you to pray with me that God will build within me through the Spirit, the work of Jesus Christ. That's why James 5.16 tells believers, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. That is precisely one of the reasons for having discipleship for each other in the church. In order to obey James 5.16, I have to have at least one other person to confess to. And we need to know how to pray for one another. This is keeping our relationship with the Lord real. It's, it's making specific what we often speak of only in the abstract. What divulge first to the Lord, and then as God gives us opportunities, as we build relationships with each other, so that we can work faithfully with God and be accountable to our brothers and sisters in the church. But notice, than that the people in verse 6 were confessing their sins in connection with their baptism. Now, baptism, just so you know, was not a new thing that John made up. Uh, the Jews, even though we don't read about this in the Old Testament, we know about this through other literature in the time period, the Jews had been using the ritual of baptism for a long time to signify this new beginning, this turning back to God. So they would come down into the Jordan and they would stand in line and when it was their turn, they would come to John who was baptizing them and they would confess their sins and he would dip them under in the good Baptist way uh, as as, a symbolic cleansing and a sign outwardly of what they were confessing inwardly. And this was an expression of their commitment. They didn't just stand at the riverbank and hear John's preaching and say in the privacy of their own heart, okay, I'll I'll do that. And nobody has to know about it because, you know, we can still hold our pride. We can still hold that veneer when we don't have to be real with other people. The genuineness of the repentance is seen in their willingness to confess specific sins and to declare for all to see that they were turning around and they were coming back to God or coming to God. Now, in order to understand this dual action of repentance and and, uh, confession and commitment together, there is a fourth profound truth that we see held out for us in this text that serves as a contrast to confession and commitment. And I'm talking about the neglect of repentance. Repentance is crushed by an elitist Attitude when we think that we have no need for repentance because we're above that somehow we would never say that of ourselves we don't think of that way uh, we don't think that way of ourselves, not consciously, but really when we, we, are, we struggle with pride and we don't want to confess we don't want to repent, that's what's going on, we have this elitist attitude repentance is for the real sinners or maybe when I really blow it. Otherwise, I'm just fine. And we see this neglect reflected in the response of the Pharisees and Sadducees who also came to the baptism. So Matthew tells us, if you look at the beginning of verse 9, when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance, And do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Now, now what is going on here? I mean, it seems as if John would be delighted that these spiritual leaders of the people were coming to his baptism. Like, oh, wow, we were praying that repentance would reach these people. The Pharisees who were considered the theological conservatives of their day. In fact, you know, I, I know we beat up on the Pharisees a lot. It's a lot more complicated than we know. If Jesus had to pick a political, I am should say a, a theological uh, idealism among those that were available when he came in the first century, he would have been a Pharisee more than any other of them. And theologically, they were rooted well. Compared us to the others. So, so they were the, the, the conservatives of their day. They were, they were the fundamentalists, you could say, of their day. And, and the progressive Sadducees, they weren't so much, they were, they were like the, the mainstream evangelicals, okay, of the day. Uh, sorry to any mainstream evangelicals. Um, let's, let's say left-leaning evangelicals, okay? All right, I don't want to get in too much trouble. Uh, they, they, were, they were friendly with the Roman elites, I mean, they, they, they toyed with, with the things of the world as long as they could get ahead, as, as long as they could get something out of that. And so they gained control over the Sanhedrin and the temple, uh, the, the, the leading the temple, because they were put in political power by the Romans. And that had been going on for hundreds of years. It wasn't just a thing that started when Jesus came. But John is not impressed by their presence. You see, all of the people who were flocking to hear John were coming to be baptized, confessing their sins. But Matthew does not say that the Pharisees and Sadducees were being baptized. It merely says that they were coming to the baptism. And there is a world of difference between repenting and coming to watch other people repent. Now, some of them may have repented and believed that the Messiah was coming. I mean, I hope that's true. You see people in the, in the Gospels, like Nicodemus, who are very interested. Joseph of Arimathea. And, and after Jesus rose from the dead and, and the apostles began preaching the Gospel, there were many priests and uh, uh, Jews who, and, and, and Sadducees and Pharisees who came to faith in Jesus Christ. But as a group, they've not come here in response to John's message. Not now. They've come from Jerusalem to investigate. They're curious. They want to know what all the commotion is. They're listening to John with skepticism, standing there judging, looking down their noses at everyone else. So John cries out, you brood of vipers. Now, I, I, I'm telling you, I've been trying to determine exactly why he calls them the brood or the offspring or the children of vipers. I can't say 100% for sure. It can't be very good, OK? Let's, we can start there. <laughs> vipers are this this cunning and poisonous creature in in, in the mind of, of the people in those days. And to be born of vipers spiritually at least means that you're not a true believer, but also that you're in danger of poisoning and corrupting the true people of God. And that is exactly how they end up being portrayed in Matthew's gospel. So, when John says, who warned you to flee from the wrath of the wrath to come? He's got to be saying this in sort of a sarcastic way. Oh, I didn't expect to see you guys here. I, I mean, who told you to flee from the wrath to come, if that's exactly what you're here for, which I doubt. Nevertheless, John warns these elitist religious people in two ways. First of all, he warns them in verse 8, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. In other words, they can stand there and look all holy, But there needs to be fruit, evidence in their lives that they have actually turned from sin and are following God. And that's what the Pharisees and the Sadducees struggled with spiritually. They struggled with true holiness, true righteousness, because everyone uh, respected them. And that's something for us to note. There's something that can happen to us where we put ourselves above what other Christians need to do when we start being too respected. They could put on a show on the outside and yet be completely unrepentant on the inside. In fact, that's what Jesus himself later in Matthew's gospel exhorts his followers to understand about these people. We could look at all of Matthew chapter 23, but maybe just a couple of verses here. Uh, Jesus himself Tells the multitudes, the scribes and Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. So do and observe what they tell you. They're in a place of authority. Give them respect. But don't do their works because they preach, but they don't practice. They do all their deeds to be seen by others. They love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplace and being called rabbi by others. They love that stuff. That's what they're in, for, in it for. And, and you, know, you could maybe say, well, let's not be too critical about people, but this is Jesus talking, okay? And, and we need to listen really carefully to what he's saying. And by the way, he loves these people, right? We, we like to beat up on the Pharisees sometimes as if we're like you know, on Jesus' side, and he, you know, he's really letting them have it. He, the only reason he's so stern with them is he's trying to shake them out of their spiritual apathy. He wants them to, He invites them to come as much as he invites any of us to come. And being so respected, however, how could they ever humble themselves to repent? Why would they ever need to repent? So Jesus continues, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside also may be clean, because that's what true repentance does. Repentance is concerned about the inside. It's about the heart response. But once you're repenting on the inside, you're turning from sin on the inside, it has a remarkable uh, way of, of cleansing us on the outside as well. But it needs to come in that direction. We're not repenting just by making ourselves look good. That's what the Pharisee's problem was. So he says in verse 27, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So notice this. Notice what he says. You also outwardly appear righteous to others. That's the elitist. But within you are full of hypocrisy And lawlessness, and notice Jesus' words, you serpents, you brood of vipers. He calls them the same thing John said. How are you to escape being sentenced to hell? These are those who have shown up to watch the baptisms. And John warns them, looking holy is not enough. You have to actually practice holiness by turning from sin Unto God. There's a second warning though that he gives them in verse 9. He says, And do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. This is the height of elitism. In the minds of these Pharisees and Sadducees, there was not a way in a million years that God would keep them out of the kingdom. I mean, They had Abraham as their ancestor. He was the progenitor of their nation. How would God ever allow a child, a descendant of Abraham, especially one as righteous as they were? How would he forbid them to come to the kingdom? Repentance? Do you know who my ancestor is? John tells them, look, if these rocks gave birth to people, who were concerned with turning from sin to God, they would even be welcomed into the kingdom. It's not your heritage that matters. It's not your birthright or your position or your standing. It's your heart that God wants. And once again, later in Matthew, Jesus obliterates this religious elitist attitude. In Matthew 21, after Jesus has cleansed the temple, he's challenged by these religious elitists. And Jesus says to them, what do you think? A man had two sons... And he went to the first and said, son, go work in the vineyard today. And the son answered, I will not. And he disobeyed his father. But afterward, he changed his mind, which is a, a synonym of repentance, by the way. He changed his mind and went. Verse 30 says, "After uh, he, he, uh, the, uh, he, the father went to the other son and said the same. And, and he answered, I go, sir. It seemed very obedient on the outside, but he didn't go. So Jesus says, which of the two did the will of the Father? Well, it's a no-brainer. They said the first. Even though the first son at first disobeyed his father and the second son pretended to obey, it's only the one who is blessed at the end who actually repents and obeys. So Jesus gave them the spiritual application. He said to them, truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. Oh, that made him mad. <laughs> that really made him mad. For John came to you in the way of righteousness. He goes all the way back. He, and this is, a, this is three years earlier, at least. John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and prostitutes believed in him. That's who were being baptized. And even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your minds and believe him. I would say probably because they saw the prostitutes and the other sinners coming, they were like, well, I don't want a part of this. I don't, I'm not like them. I don't need that kind of repentance. And, and, and again, we can sit here and critique the Pharisees, but that's really what's holding us back sometimes. We really don't feel like we need to be that humble about it. This is good for other people. They've committed great sins, but I'm good. We need to pray that God delivers us from an elitist attitude. The Lord never intended for His church or its institutions to be built up by Christian elites, pastors and church leaders and professors and evangelists that everybody honors who can do no wrong, this inner circle of prominent men and women that no one will, else will be able to live up to. And you, look at, you talk to some of those, and they're very humble people. They don't want to be exalted like that. We have a tendency to exalt certain people. That's not what Jesus taught. There's no prominence in the church. There's no position of greatness. Uh, if, if you're here to climb a ladder of success, I have some news for you, <laughs> okay? There is no ladder. At Gateway Baptist Church, there should never be a ladder in any church except that we're putting ourselves on the bottom rung because we want to serve other people. We're all servants of Christ. We're all slaves of the same master. We're a gathering of slaves. Where's the position of honor? It belongs with Jesus Christ. And you might look at some men or women and think, you know, what's wrong with me? They look like they have it all together. So we'd like to give that that impression. I feel like a complete failure next to them. I I have to confess my sin all the time. I'm always having to repent, to run to Christ again. I'm so glad God is so patient with me because if he wasn't, I, I, I don't know what I would do. You think that way sometimes. And I'll tell you what, if you think that way, don't ever stop feeling that way about your life with Christ. If you do, then you need to be concerned. We must always walk dependent upon him. Always turning from wrong and right through confession and commitment. I don't know if you've ever envisioned your Christian life, especially when you're younger, and then you get older, as you know, you've, you've this path ahead of you, and you look forward to the day where you're not going to be sinning much anymore. Okay, and uh, you know, you, you look. I mean, some of you are older. Look back, and you're like, you you probably you know, the proverb says that as you walk on that path, it gets brighter and brighter into the into the perfect day. And you thought that meant you know, I, sin is going to fall away. You know, and praise God, it will someday. But God is not promising us that we'll have this perfect little path to walk down and everything is going to be just great, just have to wait for a little bit, just keep praying every day, keep serving Him. Pretty soon you'll be free from any trouble. No, God is always keeping us right here because He knows He's the only one who can change us. He's the only one who can minister to us and make it stick, make it last. And we have to avail ourselves of that grace through faith, and through repentance. And if we ever come to a place where we do not think we need to live that way anymore, and we, it means we've become elitists. And the Lord does not build His church with elites. He builds His church with humble servants who say, I know I don't have much to offer, but I want to learn to follow the Lord with you by way of faith and repentance and obedience. That's how God builds His church. Now, We have to hurry on because I want to deal for just a few moments with one final profound truth that teaches us to have a heart of repentance, and that is the urgency of repentance. Repentance is crucial because of coming judgment. Why does John and later Jesus frame their preaching with this message, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand? Because the coming of the king is at once a time of final judgment upon his enemies or those who have not turned to him, those who have not turned out of the way and come to him. It's at once a final judgment upon his enemies and a vindication of his people who have hearts of faith and repentance and have turned from their sin to him. When we pray for God's kingdom to come, we're praying for these these dual actions, these dual events. John preaches, even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit, in other words, the evidence of repentance, is cut down and thrown into the fire, which in Jesus' preaching and here in, in, in John's preaching is always a symbol of eternal judgment. This fire. That I baptize you with water for repentance or, or as a symbol of your repentance. But he who is coming after me, the King, is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. John's baptism is merely symbolic. Jesus will baptize for real, for keeps. And I take this to mean that Jesus will administer two kinds of baptisms. And there's some discussion about this text in the commentary literature. I take it to be two kinds of baptisms. The first is a baptism with the Holy Spirit, which Jesus pours out upon believers when they come to faith in Him. And we see that dramatically happening in the book of Acts, beginning with chapter 2. The second baptism he mentions here is a baptism with fire. What is this fire? Well, in verse 10, it's a fire of judgment. And in verse 12, it's also a fire of judgment. Verse 12 says, his winnowing fork is in his hand. After the grain was trodden to separate the kernels from the stock, it was pitched into the air with a winnowing fork so that the grain would fall to the ground and be gathered into the barn and the chaff would drift to the side. And Jesus is pictured as having this winnowing fork already in his hand. He's he's all ready to separate who is turning to him and who is not. And John says metaphorically that he will toss the wheat with his fork and thus he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn but the bat, the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire that's the baptism of fire. This is the final judgment I think he's referring to here the lake of fire for those who do not repent turn to God by faith in Jesus Christ if you do not know Jesus Christ as your savior this is your end don't shoot the messenger. This is what the Bible says. This is the witness of God's Word. And I and so many others who are here today, if you would just pull us aside and say, you know what? I'm not sure of my salvation. We would love to just sit down and take God's Word and say, this is what God says about following Him and coming to Him. But some of you may be thinking, you know, wait a minute, how could I face that kind of judgment? I know I'm a believer. I know I'm a Christian. And you're right. If you're a believer who has turned to faith in Jesus Christ, you are no longer under condemnation. Romans 8, verse 1, one of my favorite verses in all the Bible. Romans 5, 1, we're justified by faith. We're declared righteous in the sight of God because of the work of Jesus Christ. But your willingness to humble yourself and live a life of faith and obedience is actually the fruit. It's the evidence that John is talking about that you really have turned, that you're not just cleaning up the outside. And you want your faith to be genuine. And that means that all of us should take repentance as an urgent matter. In December of 1995, just five days before, Christi- uh, before Christmas, 159 passengers were flying on American Airlines Flight 965 from Miami, Florida, to Cali, Columbia. Most travelers were first or second Generation immigrants, including many children, flying home for the first time or the first time in a long time uh, to visit their families for the holidays. The Boeing 757 was being flown by two highly experienced, decorated pilots with impeccable safety records. The aircraft had been upgraded with what they were calling a glass cockpit. That is, a flight management system with the latest GPS technology that was designed to show the pilots everything in their path and provide them with this, this uh, safe flight path. And the pilots counted on this navigation system, especially on a night like this, because their takeoff from Miami had been delayed and they would be landing in the dark and it was winter and it was kind of foggy. And to fly into Cali, you had to navigate through the Andes Mountains. Cali is situated in a long valley in the heart of the Andes, with 10 to 12,000-foot peaks all around. And the pilots had been trained in these situations to trust the flight management system. In fact, the flight path was all clearly shown on the screen in front of the airline pilots with this bright line the color of magenta. If they encountered a storm like you see in this example here I'm showing you, or if they were flying over mountainous terrain, the magenta line would tell them the safe way around or through. So if the pilots were ever in doubt about their flight path, they knew they could simply follow the magenta line, and it would lead them to safety and take them to their destination with no incident. In fact, airline pilots of this time period, you can read about this, they were nicknamed children of the magenta lied so heavily on the magenta line to tell them where to fly. But there was a flaw in the technology that could prove fatal. They began to learn. In the mid-1990s, the shortcomings of the flight management system had not been completely realized. Under certain conditions, with certain flight patterns and information, the magenta line could be wrong. And on this tragic night, the flight management system told the pilots they had cleared one of the mountain peaks on their descent to Cali when, in fact, the mountain was right in front of them. And suddenly, the ground proximity warning system began to shout, pull up, pull up, because a 9,000-foot mountain named El Diluvio was rising up rapidly beneath them and the pilots did everything they could to pull up the nose of that Boeing 757 but it was no use. Flight 965 slammed into the side of El Diluvio, plowing through the trees disintegrating into hundreds of pieces many of which went over the crest of the mountain and rolled down the other side. Miraculously four of the passengers survived including a father and his young daughter but the rest of the 159 passengers were killed instantly because when the pilots were confused and disoriented in the dark, they trusted the wrong flight path, and it led them to destruction. Proverbs 14.12 says, There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. We live in a world that is always telling us to follow the magenta line, a line that is always shifting, always changing with the ideologies of the culture. But God has already given us the safe path, the right path, the holy path. And this path never changes because that's the nature of truth. Truth doesn't change. Its application can change to the situation, but truth itself never changes. And if we ever see that we have strayed from this path, God calls us to repent, to come back to the right path. It means that we turn from sin and unto God. And it means that we have to humble ourselves and confess specific sin while we commit ourselves to the right path, recognizing how needy we are. We're not elites because the King is coming. The coming of Jesus is paved by the repentant, righteous hearts of his disciples. By God's grace, let's live in such a way that we are always ready to welcome him. Father, thank you for your word.